0: Welcome to Podme If You Can, I'm David Farrell. Today on the show, it's the 200th episode of Podme If You Can, and uh, I'm doing an audio commentary for my first film, The Last Resort. So this uh, audio is intended to be played at the same time as the film. You can find the link in the description of this episode. And uh, watch it on YouTube, have it open in two windows, and you play the film at the same time as this audio. So, uh, the story of The Last Resort was very loosely based on the idea of a love triangle I had experienced. And um, I was working in a projection room at the time when I came up with the idea. And I still have the piece of paper that I wrote the beginnings of this story on. And I wrote the words, this was in December 15th, 2013, was written down next to it. A guy and girl holiday in the mountains. Her ex-boyfriend is not over her talks to her and hates him, has a gun and threatens them. Uh, I've written Mountain Resort a bunch of times, because I must have really loved that idea. And um, two people who get lost in the rain are captured and killed. There's an earthquake, which never eventuated in this film, and uh, sort of an act of God that they're able to escape, uh, because this earthquake, originally in my original treatment of this story, was going to basically... ...make the cave they were in start to collapse on itself. And I had this image of some rocks hitting the villain in the head... ...and him collapsing in the cave... ...and uh, them being able to escape... ...basically because of this earthquake... ...that um, comes out of nowhere. This big saviour in the third act was an act of God. And um, I never quite went with that idea in the end. I always thought doing earthquakes on a low budget... ...you know, you're shaking the camera and having your actors react as if the whole world is shaking, but, um, yeah, it never eventuated, uh, and I went in a different direction with the story. The um, the other idea I had was, at the end of this film, a couple of original endings you're getting straight off the bat in this audio commentary, uh, the other original idea I had was that it would be this real Captain Cook kind of um, resort, with ships and um, these big portraits on the wall, and uh, what you would see in the final act, is Gordon would shoot the door, the door would burst open, and there would be Celeste standing there with a wound on her um, abdomen, as if he'd shot her. And he would be, you know, responsible for her death. In fact, she would never die, because um, the wound was ink, from this ink and quill, uh, because it was this Captain Cook-themed, you know, resort, and she would have spilled the quill ink on herself, and I never quite went with that idea either. This opening scene is shot at a friend of mine's house. We did actually shoot it in sequence. Uh, Dallas in this scene is wearing a top for Casual Projects. That's the band that Dan Bray played uh, played in at the time. So Casual Projects uh, were featured very briefly on the soundtrack, I think. But he, um, pretty much, I think they're in the the car. They were going to be on the the radio in the car when they're driving, but... um, Dan did all the music for the film, all of the score, so I wanted to give him a little nod there. So this is Perpetua just waking up and uh, going back to sleep, because uh, Dallas, who uh, plays Rob, is getting ready for work, and he doesn't realise it's a Saturday. So this was uh, shot in order, so first things first, we we did shoot all of these scenes. Um, The whole film took place over a 12-day shoot, Uh, which was pretty crazy in retrospect, but it was an independent film, so we were kind of learning on the job. Dallas here plays Rob, and um, getting ready for work there in the mirror. And uh, we met when uh, I was uh, first assistant director on a film called Strange James, which filmed in Canberra. And um, Dallas then went on to star in a short film that I made for university. We had to shoot this scene from an Oscar-nominated film, There's a shot in the the fridge, which was never quite as deep as we could get it, uh, getting the milk out there, and my hand cameo is actually coming up. Um, I'm the one that pours the milk in a second into this bowl of cornflakes. I love those uh, steady shots we did with the dolly. Um, Those were actually borrowed from uh, EOR Media in Canberra. They they had like a dolly that they lent out to heaps of different productions. And... um, it was always on loan somewhere, and a lot of times you would get a message saying, do you have the dolly right now? There was my cameo with my hand there. Um, so, so Dallas I had cast in a short film I made at university, so we had to shoot a scene from an Oscar-nominated film. And uh, I wanted to reshoot the end of Fight Club. So it's one of my favourite films, and uh, the loophole being that Fight Club was actually nominated for the Oscar for Best Effects, for Sound Effects Editing. So, uh, you know, I think they intended us to do something that had won Best Picture, or Best Screenplay, or certainly an Acting Award. But I, um, really wanted to make something from Fight Club. So, uh, we reshot the end of that film, and he played the Edward Norton role. And we got to do these really cool, like, makeup effects, where, um, you know, the neck had basically, uh you know, been blown out, like, it was a lot of fun. Just that shot before of, um, Celeste, where you saw her feet going down, there was actually a box under the bed, and that actually plays into the final scenes of this film. Very early layering there, but, um, yeah, this was a really big learning experience working on this film. Um, the short film, the Fight Club scene we did, uh, did really well, I was really happy with it, and, uh, Lloyd, who does the podcast with me, actually played one of the goons, one of the Fight Club men, so um, back in the day, who, uh, one of the henchmen who delivers Marla to um, our hero. So this, uh, this house, as I said, is, belongs to a friend of mine. Um, the Smith family were really nice about letting us take over that house. And uh, we did shoot these office scenes in, um, in Canberra. And uh, basically, all of these opening scenes in Canberra, we went to the city, which is referred to as civic, for those of you not from Canberra. Uh, these office scenes were all uh, shot at the same place as we shot the interrogation scenes, so those opening scenes with the title cards where uh, Rob is waiting around. We shot them right in the same place we shot these scenes, and it was um, really good to get this location. You know, it's always good to get a nice office location. It's a very generic office, of course. That um, sofa that Perpetua is sitting on, the character of Celeste, uh, I actually had to go and pick up And I told the furniture store that, you know, this was the one I wanted, because it's just sort of uh, an idea I had to have this kind of love or lip sofa that she's sitting on, the character of Celeste, she was always this celestial, uh, out-of-this-world, female that everybody wanted. And I had this idea that, you know, I would put some imagery there, so straight away she's kind of sitting on this object of affection sofa. And so I went and picked it up from this furniture shop and I told them I would literally be bringing it back and returning it and they were fine with that as long as I kept the receipt. So during production, during the first week or so, there was a day where I had to pick this up beforehand and um, return it, you know, like they just such a strange sort of, well, here's that sofa you let me borrow as a prop. Um, Perpetua's playing this really well here, I think. She's got to be that girl who's incredibly disappointed we're meeting these characters at a time in their relationship where everything isn't working anymore. And, um, you know, they're frustrated and she's thinking of ending it, you know. Uh, She is very much the power player in their relationship. And in a way, I think Perpetua was sort of a power player on the set, you know. She was a big personality and um, I think Dallas, who plays Rob, uh, you know, maybe less so. So uh, it was sort of interesting to see how this dynamic came about. Uh, The characters of Rob and Gordon is a little nod to High Fidelity. Uh, The main character, Rob Gordon, who's played by John Cusack, it's another favourite film of mine, and um, I always sort of had an idea on the names, you know. Uh, This uh, basically came about, this independent film, because I always wanted to make a feature, and uh, working on Strange James was this real um, eye-opener that it was possible if you could get together a crew of willing and uh able participants who also sort of shared your idea of making a film and um i managed to get a brilliant crew around me and a bunch of people that obviously pushed me to make this happen which was fantastic and uh you know i'm not going to spend a long time thanking them here i will kind of point out some of their work as we go but um yeah no i was really impressed and uh, i was able to cast dallas as i said having worked with him before originally i thought he would play the character of gordon Uh, who's the villain in this film, but um, he read through my feature film script and uh, really related to the character of Rob, and I was happy to make that change, uh, especially when we got Darren Jackson Carver on board. Uh, He plays Gordon, and um, he is a big personality too. He's like a big uh, intimidating guy, and he did some fantastic work Uh, at the end of this film. There's some amazing scenes where he's at the the Cotter Dam that I'll point out when we get there. But he just had this real uh, alpha male intimidating jawline, uh, Darren did. And so every shot, you know, he's sort of stealing focus. It was great. And um, you had to believe that the two of them, you know, there was a difference physically, I suppose. And um, he has to kind of, I know he has a gun in a lot of scenes of the film, but he has to be able to, you know, be imposing uh, just uh, such a good presence in the room. Uh, So we actually had some trouble casting Celeste, I saw a lot of people for it, and um, we did a little uh, casting at the ANU where I was uh, attending at the time, and uh, when Perpetua came in, everybody sort of agreed that she was the one, and and everybody saw it, and um, right there in the room, and it was pretty straightforward after that, Uh, we knew she was on board, and yeah, big smiles from everybody on the day. Uh, the two of them are actually driving in the director of photography's car here. And of course, he's in the back seat getting this coverage. Uh, I'm a big guy and uh, I wouldn't fit in the car. So this was a really strange day where um, we were basically left at a park and these guys drove up and down this loop of uh, road getting this coverage. And I had to kind of trust that we had it or make some time in the schedule later because, um, yeah, I mean, they knew the dialogue They knew what was required here, and um, this was a real trust exercise from me. But, uh, yeah, Josh uh, Burse, who was the director of photography, he did a great job here. And there's only so much you can do in the back of a car, you know, getting reflections and uh, getting kind of these little angles on the two of them. And it really comes down to the performance for this scene to work. So um, my mental state at the beginning of this film was exhausted. Uh, the first day when we were filming those scenes in the house, I, um, I could not sleep at all the night before, and, um, day one was a huge, uh, amount of stuff to get through. So we had all the stuff we were shooting at the house, and then that evening we were shooting all the party sequences, which is where the character of Gwen, uh, pops in and, um, we see Darren and, uh, Perpetua who play... Gordon and Celeste, we see the two of them and the past where they used to date. So I was exhausted at the beginning of this shoot. Uh, this is Graham Gall and, uh, Costa Ronan who play the two detectives. I really enjoyed the two of them and their dynamic and, uh, you know, one sitting, one standing, a little bit of good cop, bad cop. Uh, Costa, you know, who uh, has Russian heritage, the original name for the character was Lawson, uh, but he became Constable Lawsov and, uh, yeah, the two of them got to interrogate and in these rooms, uh, which were really good. They had, like, a massive bench in the middle, and I believe they were for uh, youth offenders. And it was to bring them in and uh, have them talk to council and uh, family members and these kind of, you know, juvenile defend, um, offenders, rather. And this was right down the hall from where we filmed the office scenes in, uh, in the city. So Costa's gone on to be in The Americans, which is fantastic, and uh, Graham's doing some really good stuff, uh, photography and short films and things in Canberra. I really enjoy uh, Dallas's performance in these scenes, and um, he really looks like someone who's been waiting a very long time. Of course, the um, the dirt on his face and everything is explained a bit later, just kind of dirtied him up. That was the work of our makeup artist, Katie, and um, she gets a little cameo later in the film. It's the back of her head, but... Um, We didn't have any extras one day, and so she and I sat in as extras in the restaurant. Um, this... uh, Basically, all takes place around a resort, and uh, I needed it to work for the film, and I I looked at a few different resorts. And, uh, to get a location like Lake Krakenback, where they're arriving to now, was fantastic. We actually, uh, I went to Lake Krakenback and had dinner with the CEO there, and uh, Austin Robinson, he was a fantastic guy and um he actually bought me dinner which was fantastic because i guess on the strength of the pitch of this film and um he couldn't have been more helpful he put the whole cast and crew up uh he was happy for the attention um there was one element of the script that i did need to change though and as i mentioned there were uh several kind of alternate endings i was playing with because i did want to wow the audience in the end and i did want to kind of leave it on a bit of a, a question mark just quickly uh these scenes were shot elsewhere this um little exchange where, uh, first appearance from Gordon, uh, you know, and Rob has trouble urinating. Uh, this light bulb is literally just slung over a piece of wood, so it's not attached to anything, it's just, uh, to give this height advantage and this uncomfortable measure to, um, the first time you're seeing Gordon, and, uh, Gordon's uh, sizing up, I suppose, um, Rob. Rob and Query here, playing the blind owner, which, uh, is not... a concept that worked in the end Um, He didn't really get enough uh, scenes and everything I I suppose um, I could have had a bit more with him and Gordon To explain their relationship more But essentially Gordon, post-breakup, had, you know, got a job here And this was kind of a father figure to him And uh, kind of somebody who'd given him a bit more of a level head So anyway, securing uh, Lake Krakenbeck was fantastic and, um, just a, a ton of fun. Um, the ending of the film was originally supposed to take place in the room they're in, which I think is 42 from memory. And, um, they were supposed to have that exchange with, as I mentioned, the ink, where her abdomen is all wounded and you think that, um, she's dead. And basically Gordon was going to shoot himself, uh, knowing that he'd accidentally killed the love of his life. So in that scene, uh, Rob was going to jump out the window or jump down to the canoe, and uh, then the character of Celeste wasn't going to jump out the window, and we were going to stay with him, with Rob, and not knowing what had happened, and uh, follow him as he ran around to the front of the room after he heard a gunshot, and then when he gets there, we see Celeste with the abdomen wound uh, falling to the ground, and we think she's dead. Then the exchange was going to be between Rob and Gordon, and... um, Gordon was going to commit suicide, which obviously is not something a lot of people would want to happen at their establishment, you know. Had this film been more successful or more, uh, I suppose, seen by people, um, you would have associated that room with somebody committing suicide. So uh, the biggest change we made was to the end of the film, where now what had happened, when we get there, you'll see they actually have a chase scene, where um, they run away and we filmed that at the cotter and I was so happy with the location we actually just went out there intending to find somewhere to shoot and all went for a little trek and found it, it was great Um, but I did manage to write an e-book version of this film, you know, based on the motion picture kind of thing and I kept the original ending that I intended so if anyone's interested with a Kindle, uh, you can read the um, intended ending of this film so, um, Lake Krakenback was a fantastic location, and the only thing, as I said, we got to add this cool little chase sequence that, um, leads us to our conclusion. One of the problems, though, uh, there is a sort of major story problem that uh, I never addressed, and it has always bugged me, and when we get to it, I will explain it. Um, but it's something about continuity and uh, something that doesn't quite make sense with the story. So, uh, at this stage, I think, Perpetua's walking with a little bit of a limp, uh, to the car. I can't remember if we shot this in that order, but, um, it has been over ten years. So bear with me as we, uh, journey back. So, uh, the little bit of a limp here she had was because, uh, one night in, um, Lake Crackenback, she had had, uh, night terrors. And, um, she was staying in the same sort of, uh, little complex room, whatever, uh, as our makeup artist, Katie. Um... And Katie had told me the next day she had woken up and, like, in her sleep, uh, kind of bashed herself into the kitchen bench or something. She thought there was somebody else in the room, I suppose unfamiliar surroundings, and uh, she'd hurt her leg. And um, that kind of affected what's coming up next in the film, because originally uh, I did have this idea that um, her character would be involved in a bit of a chase. I love this shot, how they're uh, getting out of the car just now, um, basically, the thing I like most is that, uh, Celeste goes and stands, waiting, you know, impatiently, almost, for, um, him to bring all the bags, and he has to carry all of the bags, which is kind of crazy, and she just kind of stands there, just ticking along, almost tapping her foot, folds her arms, and, uh, it's a nice little performance from her, and, uh, of course, Dallas, carrying all these bags, he had, um, some back problems during the shoot and, uh, you know, I felt for him here having to lug all this, but it was uh, very good stuff for the character, really. So there was intended to be another chase sequence. Um, We have one at the end of the film, which is uh, one of my favourite sequences that's in the film, but um, the other chase sequence was supposed to be after the tranquilizer darts. So (laughs) the tranquilizer darts, which is coming up shortly, um, you know, was supposed to hit uh, Rob with a dart, and then Celeste is supposed to flee in panic and run to save herself. Uh, so I always had this idea that she would look around, realize that somebody shot this dart, that Rob is unconscious because it's a tranquilizer, and, um, she would flee, and I had this imagery where, you know, she would hide behind a tree and then the camera would creep out behind the tree, and, um, there was a shot in the village where Bryce Dallas Howard was, like, behind the tree, and then on the other side of the tree was the monster, and, uh, you know, in the woods, and I had this idea that she'd be fleeing from Gordon in this really similar way, and maybe he wouldn't have the exact kind of, like, right behind the tree like it was in the village, but, um, I did have this idea, this vision of, uh, him not being able to hit her right away, and a bit more drama, a bit more tension, where you're thinking she has to get away, because, like, you know, there's only so many characters, and, and uh, he's not going to catch both of them right now, it's too early in the film, but um, for her to get hit with a tranquilizer dart as well. But because of uh, her leg injury, Perpetua couldn't run, and so we quickly kind of regrouped, and as you'll see the scene, uh, Rob gets hit with a tranquilizer dart, then Celeste looks around, and a few seconds later she's hit with a dart as well, because she couldn't run from the spot she was in. And um, long story short, it took something away, but I suppose it also moves the story along, I just, there's a few things I wish we could have shot, but of course this is an independent film, and, uh, there are budgetary constraints, time constraints, I mean, you're pulling all these people together and out of their lives, basically, to do this, so, um, yeah, um, this sequence is loosely based on some real dialogue about packing that, uh, you know, me and an ex-girlfriend went on a trip, I actually went to Lake Krakenback several times, uh, before and after this film was shot. And, uh, like, they've got heated floors and stuff, I don't have to tell you um, this isn't an ad for them or anything like that, but it's on the way to Jindabyne, and, um, it's a really nice little spot where um, I've enjoyed. So here on the bridge, this is our little twilight shot, where, um, Rob's sneaking a cigarette for the second time in the movie. He was also going to sneak a cigarette at the beginning in the office scene, and, uh, who sneaks up on him, but our future villain, uh, Gordon, who, uh, grin on his face is strictly here to get information and, um, you know, bum a smoke, if you will, you know, bond over a cigarette. I've never really been a smoker myself, so, um, I just needed a device to kind of sit the two of them together to talk. And, you know, when you're a 30-something male, making friends with other 30-something males, you know, sometimes there needs to be something in AFL game Uh, You know, a cigarette or whatever it is, like a reason for the two of you to talk. Otherwise there's a lot of, hey, how's it going, you know, and they walk past each other. So for this to be convincing, you know, you need to kind of sit them together at the same point. And the device of the cigarettes is just another lie that uh, Rob is hiding from Celeste and another reason their communication doesn't work. So we actually shot this scene twice. The day before we set up, we did the whole scene, and we realized that Darren was wearing the wrong outfit. (laughs) So the second time around we had him wear this Outback shirt That uh, is, you know, the employee shirt of, uh, you know, like Krakenback if you will I mean it's not called like Krakenback in the film But uh, we had to dress him in this employee shirt that he was seen in before And he was wearing the grey t-shirt that uh, he wore, uh, wears for most of the film And it was so frustrating because obviously we were waiting for Magic Hour Which is just when the sun is going down And uh, we shot the whole thing and thought it was great, and then I went, oh, hang on, afterwards. So, you know, we were in such a rush, we didn't realise. Josh set up a couple of cameras, the director of photography, and it's so simple um, to get this kind of from both sides. It was really easy to edit. Uh, Phil Hignett was the editor on the film, and I I like to think I co-edited, basically, because I spent a lot of time there, but it was mostly his own magic in this. But um, I remember at one point we had to cut and, uh, you know, um, uh, the cigarette wasn't going to match for continuity. And in that moment, Josh just casually, you know, he's a casual, brilliant kind of guy. He just took a cigarette and obviously just ripped it in half or ripped it to the point where it was supposed to be up to. And it was so simple. And, uh, I think he really added a lot to this film. He had a lot of kind of, here's how we should fix it ideas. I mean, he thinks like, uh, his logic, I suppose, um, was, uh, really helpful. And every now and then I would set up a shot with him and um, his his catch cry was, it's not Kubrick, <laughs> you know, where um, it would be nice, obviously, if we could shoot some amazing Stanley Kubrick-esque shots, but uh, to shoot this I was really grateful, he was a big help, and, um, you know, uh, sometimes I wish I'd moved the camera more, I suppose, in retrospect, and, and nobody sees the flaws in this film like me, because, long story short, I've seen this so many times. And, uh, I've lived it, you know, there's, there's only so many versions of this film that, uh, can exist, I guess. Um, so The Last Resort, straightforward title, you know, The Last Resort, obviously they're going to a resort, and as well, they're running out of, uh, time for their relationship to work, so this is a real last-ditch effort to, um, fix what's wrong with their relationship. Gordon here, planting the seeds of the, um, the morning hike, you know, giving him a romantic idea. He can, uh, load him up and, uh, send him back to Celeste, telling him, you know, yeah, tomorrow morning, bring her out, and, uh, I'm, you know, not saying this, but he'll shoot them with a tranquilizer dart. A <laughs> uh, shot of the moon I got way later, just as a transitional shot. Uh, I like the idea that they're sitting watching TV, and there's such a strain between them, you know, physically, uh, Celeste's, basically flipping switches and um there are times where she will say something incredibly romantic to him like earlier she said this weekend you know we'll need the privacy and um you know kissing each other and stuff but then she can go so cold like this as well and he just doesn't know what to do and he's obviously going to suggest the hike in this situation the uh the vision of what they're watching there is actually a short film by a friend of mine dean Moroni. The short film was called, uh, The Electric Toothbrush, and it was a cute little, uh, film we worked on afterwards. And, um, Alison McGregor, who plays the female hiker, Hiker number 2, actually, um, starred in the film. So, um, all of the wardrobe was provided by the actors. Um, I never had to buy any wardrobe, and I think that's probably most independent films. You know, you go and source the, um, the outfits yourself and that's going to be quite an expense so everybody owns clothes and it's a, a real tip i can give you is to just try and pick wardrobe that will work for the characters based on the wardrobe that your actors already have i remember when i worked on strange james um there was uh blood and squibs and i actually had to go out and buy duplicate outfits or the tops anyway of um three or four actors because each of them was going to have a squib attached to and uh, blow out, you know, a hole in their clothing So that was kind of a nice move But I remember they told me the shops And there was this weird day where I had to um, Head to four different shops and buy four different tops And it was just kind of a an interesting day for me, I suppose Here's a scene that most men will be able to relate to Where your lady is tired And uh, I think it's just like, you know, he's casually putting on the moves And um, trying to wake her up And you know, he thought this holiday, as probably most men do, you think when you go on a holiday with your lady that it's uh, it's all going to be fun and games, and um, Hanky Panky will occur. But uh, she's got walls up at this stage, just wants to sleep, which, you know, is understandable, but um, as well, because of the whole flipping switches thing that her character does, the next morning, you know, when she wakes him up for the hike, she bounces and she is just like, happy, fun, having a good time. At this point, he hasn't earned this, and she's all defensive, and I quite like that shot where you can see the both of them. There's always um, shots like that in soap operas, you know, where you can see both characters' faces, where the one in front chooses to look away and, um, you know, tell the story while gazing in the distance. There's never really a reason to have that shot where you're looking at the two of them, Uh, Facing the same direction. It's a very unnatural thing in life almost like, you know You don't talk to somebody while facing away from them. So it was good to um, Be able to get a shot like that where you can see her say no is a complete sentence And he obviously stops in his tracks like an animal in the headlights And this is the outfit that uh, Darren had to wear for most of the shoot Uh, Straightforward gray t-shirt and jeans combination that I've seen many times since and that outdoor shot which um, is of like cracking back uh, the resort, you basically can see that red canoe floating there. I always had this idea of an improvised sequence, uh, that we would have put in the film, where, um, that red canoe is floating there, and, uh, it's just in the background, and they comment on it. Obviously, there are no canoes set up anywhere for any of the other little villas, and they do say that they're the only ones staying there, which is fine, you know, it explains it to some effect, but to have, uh, A sequence where they commented on the canoe would have actually foreshadowed the fact that they could escape on the canoe later. So um, I was always a bit annoyed that we couldn't do this improvised scene. That shot of the bird just there, I had to sit a long time uh, waiting for that bird to actually jump off and uh, did it in such a nice way that I thought I'd include that in the um, final film. So here on the bridge we actually had a bit of dialogue that actually got lost as well and the point of view there from Gordon. So that um, that dialogue was all about, oh, you're funny looking, not a bit, you know, she was sort of starting to flirt with him again, she's happy that they're going on this hike, and then when she sits down, she's immediately impatient and says that he's late, and, uh, you know, think wonders if there's even a hike here. So this was the sequence where she couldn't run, and I'm always, I've always been really happy with the dart in the neck here, which is about to hit, boom, there it goes, and down he falls, and as I said, Dallas had some back problems, so he was a real trooper... Uh, being able to collapse on cue, and then no chase sequence here, but uh, I do enjoy the out-of-focus, blurry kind of shot where she's passing out, and uh, there's sort of a figure of Gordon, and you know that he's the one responsible And uh, as an audience, and I'm um, really unsure what's going to happen next. The dart in the neck thing comes from Old School with Will Ferrell. Uh, basically, long story short, I loved the dart in your neck comedy scene. And if I was going to shoot somebody with a tranquilizer dart, and that was actually a dart from a straightforward dart set with a dart board, um, I loved the idea of getting them in the neck. So uh, we were able to make that kind of putty effect where um, the putty on his neck was, you know, skin colored enough. And it was only a very quick shot to um, emphasize that it was stuck in his neck and that he passed out immediately. And maybe there's some question of tolerance too, because he gets hit with it and he falls and he's unconscious immediately. And, um, she is, you know, she's got a couple of seconds of, uh, she's still passing out, you know, so I don't know. Um, that just sort of worked because I really wanted that shot of, um, of Darren out of focus, um, as sort of the camera was lying down, looking up at him and, Costa's playing it really nicely in this scene, he gets to be the bad cop, he's chewing the scenery a little bit more, and he's got gum in his mouth most of this time. Uh, these two cops, you know, they're just looking for answers, but um, they're not getting much. We're, this this narrative device, I suppose, of um, having the, the two cops interrogate him was always on my mind. I like the idea that, you know, he would say something like, you know, we know about the bodies, and then you would think, what bodies? Oh, somebody's definitely going to die in this film, you know, leading the audience a little bit. I was trying to be careful not to give away too much information, like uh, the fact that the character of Celeste is just in the next interrogation room over. Um, You want to wonder who's actually died and and everything, and just telling you that he's survived doesn't tell you much about the story. Um, So we... We have these two hikers, which is really a device that replaced the earthquake, I suppose. Uh, played by Nathan Spateri and Alison McGregor, and the two of them just get to be the kind of uh, the ones that get them out of the cage in the cave, and um, I think that works really well. Uh, an earthquake also would have been fun, but you would have had to, I suppose, have knocked out uh, Gordon, and then have him wake up and they've already escaped, you know, have, like, a massive rock kind of crush half the cave, uh, the cage open, um, I suppose making, like, styrofoam rocks and stuff before the shoot would have been, um, another thing, another complication, and, and as I said, there's a lot of budget and stuff to this, um, so the cage, um, was, well, I mean, it's sort of flimsy looking in retrospect, of course, but, um, again, that's the budget there, uh, you know, to have barbed wire over it was a bit of an afterthought, too. Uh, we looped barbed wire and stuff over it, so it was like they couldn't sort of get enough momentum to break out of the cage, and it was all as if it was all tied and locked together. But in actuality, of course, to get the actors in there, we would literally just lift the cage and place it back on top of them. And uh, they spent some time in this cold cave. We shot in an actual cave, uh, Wee Jasper, um, which was a two-day shoot um, which was one of the last things we did on the film. And, um, the temperature inside the cave was fantastic. I mean, it's just nice, uh, cause it was sort of warm weather. Um, I believe we shot in early March. Um, uh, the, the cave was always cool because it's underground. And, you know, I went and uh, done a tour of the cave with, uh, Phil, who's uh, the editor of the film. We drove out from Canberra and we checked it out. Obviously brought the dolly tracks, because you can see we've got these nice smooth movements and the reveal of uh, Gordon here. And um, when we met the uh, the character, who Jeff, who um, takes care of the cave at Wee Jasper, I mean, he took us on the tour and he showed us the bats, who were named uh, Basil and Sybil from Faulty Towers. And... Um, Yeah, to be honest, he was very accommodating. The one major practical issue we had was there's no power source inside a cave. So we had to run these long extension cords uh, from outside to inside just to get any kind of lighting at all. And though there were a few kind of mounted lights in there, um, one of the better things was, you know, we were still able to get our dolly, uh, you know, the cage itself, which we had to assemble and then um, unassemble inside the cave there. And, uh, you know, just to get all the equipment down there was, you know, he was very accommodating, obviously, and there's a lot of steps and a lot of potential for, um, you know, uh, people to get hurt and we were able to do it safely, which was great. Um, Darren and uh, Dallas rehearsed a lot of these scenes together. They got together a lot um, and just really learned their lines and became friends, which was sort of interesting because... The only scene in which they're in where the two of them can be friendly with each other is on the bridge where they have that cigarette. And uh, I think they became genuine friends over the course of the shoot and had to play enemies, you know, fighting for this one girl, this um, celestial being, if you will. So um, I do remember the the night before we had these wee Jasper shoot, um, basically the whole crew couldn't come up because... They were all attending um, this short film festival in Canberra. So uh, there were two of us just assembling the cage and uh, getting everything ready. And while we were doing this shoot, uh, we were staying like um, 150 meters from the entrance of the cave. So, uh, you know, it was like really relaxed and um, everybody would have a beer afterwards. And it was like a really nice dynamic to it and um, probably one of my own more enjoyable moments filming. Um, as well, uh, they still continued to do tour groups while we were shooting in the cave and, um, you know, they would come in and obviously we weren't doing anything too crazy at the time. We would know there was a tour group coming and, uh, we were quite deep within the cave system. So we could sort of hear them approaching and we were a bit of a novelty, um, on the, uh, on the journey for them. So Darren, uh, getting to pull a gun out there, and the big reveal that he has a gun, you know, shuts them up pretty quickly. So this night shoot um, was the very first night, and I was after all of our shooting at the the house, and this was the party scene I referenced earlier. In the background you can see Pete, who was a... um, There he is. Pete, who was uh, one of the producers of the film, Peter Daly. That's our makeup artist walking past with her boyfriend, who I believe is now her husband. Uh, And the two of these guys get their flashback moment where you get to see what a nice relationship looks like for the first time in the film. Celeste dated Gordon and, you know, the two of them had this very enjoyable uh, previous relationship, but she couldn't trust him. And so this sequence here, um, I think actually, again, in retrospect, is being played wrong uh, by Perpetua, and obviously I am at fault of being the director there, but I feel like she should have um, and it, maybe it should have been played a bit more, uh, she was distracted, she was a bit cautious, maybe I could have got a shot of Celeste and Gwen, um, you know, even here as she leaves, they could have looked at each other, because, uh, at this time, what she's doing is setting up Gordon, um, with Gwen, and Gwen is there on the left of frame, she's, uh, played by Virginia Bowers, and she's there literally to seduce him and see if he'll go for it, and I did have this idea that, uh you know if you asked a girlfriend of yours um you know if a female asked a girlfriend of hers to see if uh her man was cheating sort of thing that you know whether or not he would go for it whether he would take the bait whether he would say oh i'm sorry i've got a girlfriend you know and shoot you down uh and that as a testing way um i found you know kind of like an interesting psychological experiment and as well whether or not uh the female character that is doing the seducing Here we see them going to bed together, whether or not that was ever part of the plan, whether or not, you know, she was supposed to all the way cheat with him, um, or whether she was just supposed to see whether or not he would cheat. Uh, So it seems like she's kind of gone too far and, you know, she's seduced him in this moment. This shot we talked about coming up is um, Gordon's moment of no return. So there's all these insert shots of uh them falling around and then he looks at her, pulls back her hair and he looks her in the eyes and there's a pause and he looks at her and decides to do this and there's a conscious kind of this is what I'm gonna do. And there's the moment where he pauses there and, and so we had to have that kind of moment, uh to and that out of focus shot I really like, uh to show that he's the one that has done the betrayal in this and it you know, he's made a deliberate decision to do it. That was actually the second time we'd shot that sex scene because we'd really loaded up the first day, I wanted to get ahead, so, um, we tried to shoot all the house scenes, as well as, uh, that night we shot the party scene, and at the end of the party scene, because she was already there, we wanted to get Virginia, uh, to shoot the sex scene as well, which was originally intended to be a shot where, um, the camera was behind her, and, um, you could see her bare back, and that was to imply that, you know, there was nudity, and, Uh, without actually showing any. And we'd sort of done a little storyboard of it. But um, I think at the time, you know, shooting an independent film, uh, Virginia doesn't know us very well. Uh, The Long story short, um, we we filmed it and it didn't really work. And um, I don't think she was very happy with it. So uh, she'd actually suggested reshooting it. And, uh, you know, fate being what it is. uh, Virginia was going to a wedding that was at Lake Krakenback. And it was it was happening at on one of the same dates that we were at Lake Krakenback. And so we penciled some time in and where you actually see them fall and collapse and kiss and so forth um is actually a different room at Lake Krakenback Resort where um she was staying and that was just such a weird coincidence that you had to go with it and you had to kind of reshoot the scene. I love uh Gordon's intensity, Darren brings a lot of intensity to these scenes. And pretty much this is just the reveal of the kind of character of um Celeste and that she's not so perfect. This is one of the first times her reputation is on the line. And um you know, he is really mad because at this time um he never got any explanation. He pretty much cheated on her and then she left. She never broke up with him. And there's a real sense of unanswered questions here. And uh, I suppose a real sense of, like, you know, <laughs> a overlap of relationship almost, because he, in a way, Gordon thinks it, it you know, never ended. Um, and her reappearing here has triggered something in him. And one of the really big things is the ring that she's wearing. Um, as we learn later, he proposed to her at Christmas, and, uh, did a little poem, which was very cheesy, and a very, uh, kind of, you know, gave her this, like, little flower-looking ring, which was, uh, literally a ring I had given a girl, so, uh, this was a prop that, um, I used, basically because it told part of a story, uh, for me, and, um, so this ring, which was used for the proposal, she still wears it, the character, uh, and she's wearing it right now, and wearing it through the film, and, this gives you a moment later on where Celeste can throw the ring away or get rid of the ring, basically. And it shows, um, symbolically that she sort of shedded, uh, Gordon and, um, was able to separate herself from him. So, you know, we have this kind of intense moment where they're in this little cave, in this cage. It's like a double kind of, um, change and everything like that. I never addressed toilet breaks and stuff in this, so I uh, didn't feel I needed to. Um, but the fact that he has this gun obviously makes it kidnapping and, and really sets up that he's this villain. One of my favourite shots later on is when they actually get out of the cage and um, Dallas gets to hold the gun and uh, Celeste is behind him and, uh, yeah, we, we get that kind of intense you know, flipping of, of roles and, and whether or not the character of Rob can kill Gordon uh, is a whole nother question, you know, he's not like him, and, uh, even given the opportunity, you know, they can't sort of, um, stoop to his level and, and whatever. It's, it's a real end game for Gordon, because pretty much what he wants here is for the two of them to be together, but he has no idea how to make that happen, and, um, shooting them with tranquilizer darts and just, like, losing his mind, this is all, like, some kind of temporary insanity for his character um, when Celeste is with Gordon, you know, she's not as in control, and, uh, you know, maybe perhaps she's closer to equal with, um, with the character, you know, and he's mocking her here, which is a really interesting, you know, callback to earlier. Um, I really enjoyed writing the script for this, um, it wasn't so completely, truly based on anything that had happened to me, really just a gem of an idea, that I'd, I'd received a phone call from an angry boyfriend, um, who'd gotten my number and basically, you know, told me off. So it was just, you know, a loose experience of uh, feeling somebody's temporary breakdown or psychosis or just anger towards me had germinated into this. And, um, yeah, so I suppose the other thing is, you know, the character of Celeste, you know, Rob is much more submissive. She's able to kind of mould him into what she wants. And at this time, you know, he's feeling incredibly used and everything like that. Uh, The film, obviously, was shot on uh, digital video, DV, with tapes. Uh, This shot of um, Gordon here going into this shed that's clearly a gigantic shed, uh, which we shot, you know, near Krakenback. But then this shed shot, the interior, uh, was actually shot in somebody's backyard, so it never quite matched, but I was okay with it. Um, And originally in the script, too, we had this idea that he was going to look incredibly intensely at a mirror, and, uh, shave his head, and he was going to sit there, uh, shaving his head, looking at the old photograph, of course, and, uh, intensely kind of have a physical change, I suppose, that, uh, didn't quite feel absolutely necessary, and I'm not sure whether or not, uh, in retrospect, you know, Darren really wanted to shave his head, he had had a shaved head before, he'd mentioned to me, um, yeah, but, uh, you know, it didn't quite need to happen, like, but I imagined this scene of the lead act, uh, lead villain, really, um, Shaving his head and intensely looking in the mirror and just kind of slowly zooming on his eyes and just having this moment where you're watching him completely committing to this insanity and completely committing to this plan of uh, You know, he's kidnapped them and they may or may not make it out of there alive all this kind of uh, extra shots here of the two of them sleeping a quick kind of montage that the night has happened and um, this early morning shot on Lake Crack and back of this fog, which we shot with multiple cameras multiple times, and um, it was a case of obviously getting in there early. I enjoy this shot, this um, shot of the roof of the cave, and um, Gordon coming in with this bag of clothes and goods that he's, you know, taken from their room. Having the advantage of being an employee at the resort, I always wanted him to seem like he could move around without too much concern. And, uh, you know, he was able to completely repack them, I suppose. Uh, And there's a callback here as well to the fact that Rob didn't want to unpack, and he made it very easy for Gordon to remove his stuff because he was living out of his bag. Uh, Quick story, um, he holds up a pair of underwear here, and I was like, well, I'm going to have to go and buy some women's underwear for this shot. And I have to go and pick, and it's a very strange thing to just go and buy women's underwear as a man, but uh, I just went and picked some from Kmart, you know, um, the decision to sniff clothing here was, I was, I think Darren's, um, and I'm glad he didn't sort of sniff the underwear, but just holding them up and saying, do you remember these? I remember these, you know, it's uh, obviously implying their sexual history, and he's playing mind games here too, and putting the uh, underwear over the gun as well, picking them up with the gun, it's sort of, It's an interesting kind of little shot. I quite liked the idea. And, um, you know, they were obviously able to uh, help me get my vision here. One of the major problems with The Last Resort, and uh, one of the major reasons why we never really put it in film festivals and things like that, uh, was the audio. Now, um, I can't recommend highly enough to independent filmmakers to learn from my mistake. And people say the audio is more important than the visuals. And they're quite right. Because uh, when you watch this film, you know, the audio, some of it, uh, large chunks of it at times uh, had to be re-recorded. We had a device um, that was connecting our audio equipment to the DV cameras. And um, that device was built for us, you know, soldered together and put together. And and, uh, it didn't work as effectively as it could have. And uh, pretty much we had one channel of audio and it, it wasn't very high quality audio and we thought well, we were going to have to re-record some of these scenes and ultimately, the, I notice it more than anybody, I'm sure people see it, but, um, or hear it rather but the performances don't quite match, you know you can get a line of dialogue where you say, I told you not to run and you can say, I told you not to run, and you can match the lips, you know, doing that ADR But getting the same kind of moment from an actor is almost impossible. I mean, unless probably A-list actors can do this. I mean, there's probably some voiceover artists who can get in that zone. But you're asking someone to come and re-record dialogue. And you're kind of looping it again and again. And, uh, you know, if anything, I think they're getting further and further away from that kind of truth of their performance. So um, I take full responsibility on that. But um, that hurt the film somewhat and it made me feel like, um, it wasn't quite what it could have been, um, hurt the performances a little bit. I remember the premiere of this film, I was amazingly nervous, and, um, I was suited up and uh, ready to watch, and basically, um, you know, sweating my brain out, Uh, I went past in a blur, and I was actually sitting next to, um, Perpetua and uh, her boyfriend, and, um, that was a complete accident. Uh, We hadn't planned any seating and uh, that was just the seats that were available when they came in. And um, I remember thinking, oh man, I'm so nervous about this entire thing. And uh, yeah, I had to give quite a lengthy speech and obviously people don't enjoy public speaking. And um, I have somebody recorded the whole speech for me that I gave. And uh, it's obviously a series of shout outs and thank yous. And I think there's some huge change in me from the beginning of this film to the end. Um, it's sort of a really interesting moment in my life. Uh, at the beginning of the film, I had this idea that I wanted to make a feature film, which, you know, lots of people do. And uh, my inspiration was the, f- the fact that Orson Welles had made his first film at age 26. And I knew I wasn't going to make Citizen Kane or anything. But um, I sort of thought, if you would like to be a filmmaker, if you would like to be on this trajectory... Uh, you have to kind of say, why not, and a bit of that, if not now, then when. And so I kind of had the idea that I would try and make a film by the same age. I would make an independent film, you know, feature length, uh, by that age. I didn't want to make short films. Um, I did make some short films, but I didn't want to make short films uh, because I felt there was more credibility in a feature. I love all these shots of these rocks here. I'll just quickly digress. Um, When Gordon is leaving and the two hikers see him, Nathan here and Alison, their introduction, um, you saw them briefly earlier in the film, but uh, the two of them have to get down because they see that he's got a gun. And uh, obviously that leads them to the cave and leads them to find Robin Celeste, which, as I said, this narrative device replaced an earthquake, which I think you get kind of more of a personal uh, effect when the two of them come in and save them. And there's a lot of, you know, oh my gosh, what's happening here? And, you know, people helping others in, in a moment of crime or terrorism, if you will. Uh, As well, you get that added bonus of um, Gordon being able to kill two people and prove that he's serious. And at this time, we don't know that he's also killed the resort owner, played by Robin Query, uh, which we see in Flashback. But um, long story short, you know, to have two people save them rather than an earthquake might have felt more like a cop-out. If I'd done this shaky camera work, an earthquake had happened. It might have felt, I don't know cop out is probably the best word uh well anyway there's somebody filmed the whole premiere for me and um you can see it in my face that i'm exhausted we'd actually set a date for um release so uh, as to be a part of the um electric Shadows cinema in canberra was closing down and they were having one final kind of run of movies for their closing down kind of festival and we wanted to be a part of it so we had to get the film completely finished uh for that screening so at the beginning, I was optimistic. I thought, you know, if I could make this independent film, I'd be on the right track. And uh, there's video of me, as I said, um, you know, with so much kind of vigor in my eyes, and and the idea that uh, this is going to be a stepping stone to the next thing and the next thing. And um, I really wanted to be in that club of Camberons who had made feature films. You know, there was a very small club at the time, and um, I wanted to make a contribution to it. And um, Strange James had been one of the first digital films in Canberra, which I was happy to have worked on. And as well, there'd been uh, A Touch of Courage, Daniel Sanguinetti, uh, who's been interviewed on the podcast. Um, And then people tend to make one, realise feature films are quite exhausting and um, expensive, and then not make another one. So uh, I had always wanted to make a second one as well. and, And my headspace was totally different. And I won't get into it now, but my second feature was a documentary, um, The Young and the Wrestlers, about the independent wrestling scene in Canberra. So Nathan gets to come in here and have his speaking role, uh, trying to bust them out of there. Uh, He was in contention for um, the role of Gordon as well. I think Nathan just looks like a nicer guy, and um, Darren really had this intensity that I've mentioned. They use the stick here to break the probably too flimsy cage that's holding them. Darren uh, used to work at uh, Movie World on the Gold Coast, and he used to be Batman, so he had that jawline of, uh, you know, a hero. And uh, lots of other things, The Great Raid and so forth, he'd worked on quite a few films. So they break the cage open at this time, and um, this is the bit where Nathan gets to be a bit of a hero. So hiker number one he plays, and I think we named him Ben, um, they had a bit more of a backstory about the two of them and why they were hiking, but uh, it's not important to get into it right here. But they're able to, um, wrestle to the point where, you know, uh, Rob gets the gun, and here's this shot coming up where, um, he's got the gun, Celeste gets out of the cage, and, well, there goes Nathan. He's been stabbed. And I remember we took photos of these guys, uh, they sort of wrapped very easily because they are only with us for a few days. Um, there's that shot of him with the gun. And, um, you know, I remember this one photo we've taken of Nathan and uh, Allison, and the two of them have uh, blood kind of stains all on their top and whatever. And, you know, they looked like corpses because we had to take these pictures that obviously the two um, constables go to show them, you know. Um, there were lots of ideas for these insert shots. But, um, yeah, so we back to the interrogation room, you know, cigarettes playing a part. Um, look, I remember casting these guys, um, Graham Gall actually had to, there's those insert shots, Graham Gall actually had to, um, read for the part of Gordon, and it's sort of one of the stranger, uh, auditions, just because I didn't have a second kind of scene for him to read on the day. Uh, but I remember he, I've got this on video, him reading for Gordon and, uh, acting as if he, um you know, was the boyfriend of, uh, Celeste, which is this amazing kind of, you know, a uh, solid performance. Of course, the audition was great and he got this role, but he was asking me on the day, I think, you know, so there are older characters in the film as well. And I was saying, oh, yes, yes, yes. There, there are these two, uh, you know, constables, agents, if you will, these, uh, law men that, you know, <laughs> can be older actors, absolutely. And, uh, but it was just strange for him to read for Gordon and, you know, Play opposite Dallas, who did all the uh, auditions. He um, was the first one cast, as I said, so he got to read along for um for Rob. So yeah, this uh, the premiere was an amazing experience, and um, I booked a little venue for the cast and crew to kind of meet up before the um the premiere at Electric Shadows in Civic. And uh, my my strongest memory was that I'd uh, put money on as a for the bar tab. And all the actors and everybody beat me there. And when I finally said hi to everybody and I went to get a drink, there was no money on the bar tab. And the first thing I had to do when I got there was put more money on the bar tab uh, for everybody. And, I, you know, I, I obviously wanted to thank them. This was something that I'd always dreamed of doing, a feature film. And, um, you know, for this crew of people to get on board and do it. I think as well it's sort of... Um, It did what Strange James did for me, which was to tell people, you know, that this was possible, and kind of since then, you know, others have gone on to make their own films, which is great, and I'm happy to have been a part of it, but um, I tell people nowadays that, you know, I've sort of scratched that itch of filmmaking for now. I'm doing a lot of writing, and, um, you know, that feels um, more like what I should be doing. So again, this is one of my favourite shots, the the shot of, um, Dallas holding the gun and the, the tides have turned. And, uh, yeah, long story short, without a great deal of directing experience, um, I don't know that it was my forte. I remember Perpetua gave me quite a hard time, um, you know, being difficult here and there. And it's sort of testing our boundaries. I felt like, you know, I couldn't win. I remember there was a conversation we had, uh, where she said, "What would you do if I walked off the set right now? Like, what would you do if I decided I didn't want to do this anymore?" And it was, it's some of it is on video because at the time we we have these behind the scenes cameras rolling at times, and uh, Dallas obviously took a lot of photos and video that I appreciated, and um, I've managed to watch all these kind of behind the scenes videos and interviews as well. Um, Phil Hignett, who was doing the editing. I was planning on putting together some behind the scenes footage and uh, I got to sit down and watch these interviews a few years ago of all the actors and actresses and everybody in the film talking about how they met me and what happened and you know how they were cast and and seeing it all from a different point of view is so strange but uh, there were games on the set like I'm a fairly kind of straightforward (laughs) fellow and uh, I don't laugh easily And especially, I suppose, through some exhaustion. Um, This chase sequence here, you know, Dallas got to do a little turn there, which is a lot of fun, and they're making their way back to the resort. Um, I I don't laugh easily, you know, to make me laugh, uh, you know, there has to be a really funny joke. Or, you know, a lot of people who listen to this podcast, which is, you know, the people who are listening to this now, uh, you don't hear me laugh very often. And I realized uh, in this behind the scenes footage and stuff that you know, they had this game going where they would say something and when I would respond, that's funny, you know, I wouldn't laugh, I would respond, that's funny. So it was a really, like, interesting way of kind of learning about myself during this experience and seeing that as a director, um, though I'm putting the camera in different places, my, uh, skill set was probably less with actors than I thought. There's, um, her putting the ring down and, um, which leads us to a flashback of the actual proposal in a minute. So my, uh, my strengths as a director were more, I guess, I had an idea of telling the story, uh, the shots I would require coverage. Uh, I got quite a lot of coverage in places and, um, you know, uh, more than I needed at times. Uh, it was such an interesting learning experience. This little bit where he keeps the card in his sock, um, as well, is is something that I wanted to foreshadow earlier, but I didn't quite get coverage on, uh, which was annoying. And um, Gordon arriving back at the reception here, we had to to shoot it after the reception was closed, like in the evening and stuff. Um, And he finds the ring, and that leads to that flashback, which is actually that same house from the beginning, the Smith family, Uh, in that same house, we were able to dress with a Christmas tree and simulate uh, his proposal which at the time I thought was really cheesy. And um, I thought to myself, you know, you wouldn't propose at home. You know, that's with a little poem and stuff. Like, uh, wouldn't you take them out to a restaurant? Wouldn't you take them to the top of a mountain? Like, at the time, I thought to myself, proposing at home, there's the ring, insert shot of the ring, uh, you know, is quite a weak (laughs) proposal, and it's sort of amazing that she said yes. But in actual fact, I wound up proposing to my wife at home, and it was the fact that I bought the ring the day before and I wanted to propose to her and I had planned something else to propose to her, like, you know, out at a restaurant, wherever. Um, I was sort of had a few ideas in mind, but we started having this very deep and meaningful conversation that night about our future and about like our lives and like how much we loved each other and everything. And it was so strange that it was the moment that was just right for us. And I did wind up proposing at home and, you know, it was obviously very effective. Like, we both kind of had a tear in our eyes about it and, like, uh, you know, insanely in love and everything like that. But at the time of making this film, I thought he's really trying to force this weird moment, like he's doing the last line of a poem and stuff and he's sneaking the ring out. And, and um, yeah, <laughs> I didn't think this was a great proposal moment at the time, but a uh, little briolette shot of the box there. To uh, plug the brand. So yeah, uh, as a director, I sort of worked out that I'm, I suppose, not as big a people person as uh, a lot of directors are. I know that's a real strength among directors to make actors feel comfortable. And uh, and I don't think I was as effective as I could have been in that moment. I do remember giving them both gum before this kiss and mints and stuff. And uh, having like a, a real practical view of two actors that would have to perform a kissing sequence there. So we head back to the room. And uh, it's essentially... Oh, we head back to the car first. Apologies. And they realise sabotage has happened to the car. Um, you know, which we saw earlier with the very ominous music in this scene. And at this time, you know, the acting goes up a notch for Dallas. He, um, He's bashing the roof and he's like, you know... He, obviously they've been captive... And again, no mention of bathrooms, but um, at this time, you know, they're now, they've got that fight or flight thing happening. And they wanted to drive away and would have been a stranger film had they just driven away from the resort here and uh, dobbed him into the police. But um, they go back to the room and, you know, which a lot of people, I think, in retrospect, think is, uh, you know, trapping themselves And since he works at the resort, can't he just get another key card cut and, uh, you know, get to the room? But he is running wild as well. Um, A lot of the film I divided the frame in half, where Rob would be on one side and Celeste on the other. It repeats in the shots of the beds and uh, just there at the door as well, when they first barricade themselves in room 42. Um, And I wanted to give them half the frame each, because effectively they were on opposite sides for most of the film, you know? They, um, they're trying to be quiet there as well, uh, you know, and (laughs) there is a reason for them to make some noise, which of course is a character that has uh, passed away, which is the resort owner. So Gordon stalking around, stalking, um, you know, kind of just leering, moving, whatever. There's the body and there's the scream. I think Perpetua really enjoyed doing that screaming sequence, um, and we had to... (laughs) Had to have headphones on Phil, who was doing audio at the time. And uh, I remember her screaming into the microphone and him going, yep, nope, and just, uh, yeah, that was loud. And, you know, us turning down the audio was, yeah. Uh, We didn't really get an insert shot of whose body that was. That's probably some coverage I would have liked to have uh, grabbed in retrospect. Um, But the idea of him holding the ring here and just kind of, he's completely (laughs) lost it. Um, Gordon, you know, uh, had this father figure in, um, in the resort owner, whose name was Roy and, um, he basically killed him, which as we'll see in a second is an accident. And, uh, we had our own little accident on the set as well, because this was one of the few stunts we had in the film besides little fight sequences and things like that, uh, and chases and suppose the tranquilizers technically falling counts as a stunt, but, uh, underneath his shirt as he falls onto the table here, he had a pillow, and, uh, Robin Query, um, I sawed this whole coffee table in half, and the idea was he would crash through it, and we'd weakened it to the point where it snapped straight away, as you can see, and, uh, he actually hit his head on the edge of the sofa there, which is unfortunate, because it did kind of cut his head open, and, um, I'd taken all the precautions I could. Obviously, there's a side wound that he's supposed to have, and he's sort of bleeding to death. And the idea of uh, Gordon uh, making it a real survival of the fittest thing here, you know, a bit of a you did this to me, and everybody's at fault and she'll be with me, and he's he's lost his mind at this point too. There might have been some issues uh, shooting the film if we'd shaved his head and uh, had to shoot flashbacks and things like that. I think, ultimately, the way the schedule was set up actually made it more difficult to incorporate uh, Gordon shaving his head. But, um, yeah, we had a little accident on the set here, and the the behind-the-scenes footage was crazy because, you know, we are all like, oh, shit, and, like, um, reacting to it. Uh, Hard to watch, really, because, you know, this is one of two moments on the set where, um, as a director, you feel you can't really do what you want to do. And, uh, you know, you got to take care of these people who are working on your vision. There was, um, also an incident where I was driving and, um, I went to turn around and, uh, a motorbike came over the hill and, uh, this motorbike just veered off to the side of the road. And like, we nearly had an accident and it was another insane moment on the, the set of this, um, on the set of this film, I suppose. And that wasn't obviously no cameras rolling and stuff like that, but, um, yeah, no, I uh, had a few sort of close calls that probably would have stopped this from being made. And, um, you know, uh, this would have been not what it resulted as, I suppose. Uh, making independent films, you know, you've just got to kind of take precautions as best you can. And and um, this was an amazing learning curve for me. So um, we're trapped in room 42 here. And as I said, uh, what I really would have wanted is an insert shot earlier of the canoe, maybe a conversation about the canoe, and then maybe we would have um, had a bit more of a a sort of handle on the surroundings and the fact that they could escape via the canoe. And maybe, you know, like if this canoe was really a feature of like Krakenback, there would have been kind of like a rope ladder to get into it or something like that. Um, You know, in this case too, there is the idea of getting in the canoe that comes from him. And this is a turning point where she kisses him, he asks if, you know, she trusts him. And at this time, you know, she does. She completely trusts him. And, like, she has to do this insane thing, which is like, they're gonna canoe across, like, Crackerback, and she's so proud of him and in love with him. And he's finally taken charge in their relationship, which is not something he's ever really been able to do before. So I would have liked to have foreshadowed the fact that there was a canoe. It felt kind of convenient. And um, I suppose I left some of that out of the script because the original script, as I said, all finishes in this room. So putting them in the canoe and then rowing them across was uh, all rewritten before we got to shooting. But I suppose I could have rewritten a bit more. That's where the, uh, the improvised scene came in, where we were going to kind of point it out. Um, as a trooper, both the uh, editor of the film that's Phil, and uh, the director of photography, Josh, both had to get in these canoes. And um, you'll see a lot of the shots during this kind of canoe chase are of the two of them, you know, points of view from sort of behind them as they're rowing and everything like that. It's some great coverage. I think they did a great job. And, um, yeah, no, I I appreciated the fact that we could get sort of up close and personal with the canoeing and um, everything like that. Uh, coming up here is my cameo, and, uh, me and makeup, uh, girl Katie Hergenen, both, um, got to sit, here we are, in this restaurant, there I am, and there's Katie, and, uh, the other appearance of Virginia Bowers, who does reappear at the end of this film, um, but you can see she's wearing the ring, and there was some, originally, some dialogue here, uh, but we've removed it for some music, uh, that was an editing decision, um, So long story short, uh, the character tested Gordon, Celeste tested Gordon, he failed and in that moment where she pulls her hands away, she's sort of no longer um, in love with Gordon, you know, he's failed this one test, you know, this one final test, if you will, of their relationship and though she went about it all wrong, she never gave him closure and that's basically what's made him into this maniac that they're dealing with now. So he's still yelling at the door. He's uh, completely lost his mind and I'm really impressed with the performance from here till the end of uh, the film from um, from Darren. I think he's got a great intensity here and there's a real kind of maniacal uh, look in his eye and he just kind of, I don't know, he uh, does just does a great job. I was really happy with it. And here where he has a look um, across the lake and sees them canoeing away, in actual fact, because of the layout of Lake Crackenbeck, You could run across this lake faster than they could canoe it But um, we kind of cheat the camera a little bit And here's those insert shots I mentioned from uh, inside the canoe So he sees them and um, they're already across the lake And he has no means of getting across the lake Uh, And the bridge is really the only way of doing it But, um, you know, we stretch it out a little bit here Like that shot with the tree And uh, we stretched it out a little bit here, because he has to go and get a gun. Now, this gun was actually made for me by a props friend of mine. And it uh, is a rounded-out piece of, like, pipe. And um, the back of it's just some kind of shaped wood. And they attached this kind of little side piece to it. But it was completely fake. And, um, you know, no way were we getting an armourer with the budget we had. And um, there were a few times where... Uh, I had that gun in the back of my car and we were traveling and I I imagined if I was pulled over with that gun uh, prop that people would be like, what is this, you know, looks like we're trying to rob a bank or, you know, use it in some kind of crime. So I had this kind of massive anxiety about traveling with that gun, Um, though I'm sure I could have just told the police that this was the thing we were doing, um, you know, with this independent film. I'm sure there was more paperwork to it and uh, I avoided it all. So this chase sequence um, takes us away from the resort and uh, meets the demands, demands, not really demands, but meets the criteria of using the resort. So we we couldn't have our conclusion in room 42 as planned. So uh, they run through these bushes, and I remember, you know, they were hit with various branches and things. And it's always tricky to kind of run together as two actors. So we got really great coverage here, and I was really impressed with the amount of kind of uh, I like that shot too with, um, with Gordon Running with the gun and, you know, you don't know how exactly how close they are to each other because we had them run past the same sort of uh, shots So we filmed um, all of this final chase sequence at the Cotter Dam in uh, Canberra and uh, we were just looking for somewhere to have this sequence and I love this shot that's coming up now of um, Gordon where he says I told you not to run And he's got the camera uh, positioned beautifully to have him and the gun in shot. Which I think plays like a real gun, you know. I think it looks enough like a real gun that people never question its authenticity. And um, here he is catching up to them on the rocks. And the first wide shot you get where he's in the shot with them, just here on the rocks. Uh, And then he points the the gun and basically makes them stop. Um, And... The, the Cotter was just such a beautiful place that day, like completely cloud-filled sky, all looking white and overcast and um, really suited the mood, that's the shot I love of uh, great performance there from Darren um, So we, we just went for a wander, you know, down in that direction for the Cotter and, uh, you know, just kind of hiked out, it was, you know, just a really spur of the moment where we actually found this location and uh, it's sort of become one of my preferred sequences of the film. Also because we got to keep all the original audio uh, that we used, and we didn't really have to um, redo any of the dialogue, so it sort of ended very strongly for me, which I really enjoyed. Uh, a lot of the dialogue in, um, like, back, you know, at the door and stuff, and that's the stuff we had to redo, all the cave stuff, which is actually when the, um, the connecting cord that we had made actually broke, when we were at Wee Jasper in the caves. I love the fact that there's veins in his neck here, and um, the fact that he spent the whole time negotiating with uh, Celeste, and all she wants is to be left alone at this point. You've got this real standoff, because, you know, shotgun in hand. Um, He's going to make her come over to him, and, you know... In the idea in his head, I'm guessing Gordon would just like to shoot Rob and have him be dead, and then her be okay with the fact that they're together now, you know, just like if he has to murder him to get rid of him, he wants to, but he wants her to be okay with it. So I think his motivation this whole time is he's going to kill Rob, and he needs Celeste to be on his his, his side, you know, they need to murder him together almost, you know. Um, and this this leads to the real continuity problem of the film. Because, though nobody's pointed it out to me, of course, I've realised it myself, and I'm happy to divulge it here, that we see a flashback, you know, when he's burying the gun later on. I always like the idea that he was disposing of the weapon, as if they, in fact, uh, had shared this murder together, and that they had killed Gordon together. Um, When, in the flashback, you see uh, the character of Celeste pull the trigger and kill Gordon, and... um, She has a look on her face that basically implies that it is intentional, like, murder, that it's not self-defense and it's straight kind of execution style, as you'll see later on. So this version of events that we're seeing now is what's being told to the constables. And uh, this is the version of events that Rob is telling them in the interrogation room. So what actually happened is when he's burying the, uh, the gun is you see these quick flashes of her holding the gun and shooting, and basically she gets away with murder. The fact that she kills Gordon and that they think Gordon shot himself, which is what you see at the end of these events, Uh, she in fact shot him, and the evidence would be all there at the crime scene. You know, Gordon will have pointed the gun at himself, shot himself, and he would have bled, you know, all over those rocks and be dead there, Uh, and Theoretically, the gun should still be there, which doesn't explain why Rob is burying the gun at the end of the film, and it's something I didn't think of at the time, and only in retrospect, the beauty of hindsight, uh, does it not make sense, because where's the gun? Which, it would have her fingerprints on it anyway, because he made her hold the gun, but it would, there would be a lot to explain, I suppose, with the angle and the trajectory of how the bullet hit his body. Because if it's an execution style, like in the scene we're seeing now, where she, she's being yelled at by him, um, it would be an execution style like that, whereas the suicide would be a completely different kind of, I suppose, bullet wound and entry wound. Anyway, so the fact that he's burying the gun at all uh, doesn't make sense, and I, I kind of tried to explain it a little in my own mind, that maybe the gun gets washed away you know, that this area, you don't know what it is, you know, where they are exactly, that maybe the the tide rises, or it's uh, swept our way in the water, and or whatever. I just loved all the shape of these rocks, and um, later on there is that quick insert shot of Gordon, uh, where, you know, he essentially has his brain blown out, and there's a splash of uh, blood on one of the rocks behind him. And again, that was little Josh bursts, um Director of Photography input He had the idea to go to Bunnings and get one of those little pumps You know, that you use to spray your weeds And um, just have it behind his head and Effectively use it to just blast this kind of tomato sauce Uh, red stuff This is uh, one of my favourite bits of the performance here from um From Darren Where he's enticing her to shoot him in the head And in this retelling of the story She does. She clicks the trigger, and it's not loaded, and there's a huge change on his face in a second. There it is, where um, he just realises she absolutely doesn't want to be with you, because she would have shot you in the head right then. And uh, the look on her face, complete shock that she has also done that. And the three of them, the love triangle, you know, framing the three of them in a triangle shot there. um, It's over, you know, they stupidly, because uh, the audience groans at this in the screenings, you know, he puts the gun down, and I know it's not loaded at this point, it doesn't matter, and the whole thing was that he's not the man um, Gordon is, and, and I love this shot here, this reaction from Dallas, uh, after he loads the gun, and then he, you know, basically shoots himself off camera, the fall that uh, Dallas does, and then the shot from uh, Celeste, they really sell this moment that's coming up, but yeah, audiences uh, do not like it when a character drops a gun, you know, uh, especially the gun from earlier. It was a um, little handgun uh, that when they escape from the cave, they, uh, they're they on the run, they have Gordon's weapon and they dispose of it, like throw it into the, the woods. But I did kind of like leave it there. I didn't bring the gun back and he doesn't kind of pick it up on the way uh, and sort of supposed to symbolize that Rob is a better man than Gordon and that he would never resort to using a gun. So here's the shot of him loading uh, the bullets we didn't have a prop for. There's Dallas reacting. And this slow shot of uh, Perpetua is one of my favorite shots of her in the film uh, where she realizes he's dead and it's over and um, she's committed. And obviously this is all a retelling um, from Rob. You know, it's his statement, as that piece of paper says, And none of that really happened, and so in his mind, he's just told them all about how Celeste, you know, you know, clicked the trigger, uh, but nothing happened, and then he shot himself. So, that kind of reaction is complete fantasy, Uh, that kind of moment where uh, she looks and looks back and presumably sees that Gordon has shot himself. I really, really like the the reaction from Dallas where he falls and he kind of hits that branch. And um, kind of stumbles, because he's not expecting the gun to go off. At this stage, you know, uh, it wasn't loaded, and he thinks he's being shot at, so it's a really a really good reaction. And Costa in this scene, you know, he sells it really well, that they've been there for hours, the jacket's come off, he's sitting there, and he's, he's asking him truly, you know, what are his real motivations, and he's getting a bit of truth from him at this point. The whole thing is about truth, and that steely shot where Dallas says, I would have killed him. And, uh, you know, Costa admits I would have too, you know, that they both kind of find some, uh, some even ground. But I liked the Keystone kind of cop thing here, where uh, they're letting him go, and they've kind of convinced of his story, uh, despite my continuity error with the gun that's not actually there, and they would have been to the site of the, you know, the shooting and um, not found a gun, so that was never asked about either. It's one of those uh, hindsight twenty twenty things, but um, yeah, they kind of let him go here and I, I really liked the final line where Costa says, you know, don't leave town or anything, you know, it's a simple thing that cops always say. Uh, so I really enjoyed making the film, uh, despite how tired and, uh, you know, full on it all felt to me, and uh, I probably would do it again, but uh, the lessons I've learned on this film are kind of not to overstretch myself because um, I feel like though this film it doesn't kind of have a big uh, expensive moment it does feature you know gunplay and chases and I guess sort of the main thing I learned is um, you know maybe for your first film that a straightforward drama would do you know having a, um, a couple of characters maybe a love story, maybe something dramatic going on, but not introducing elements uh, that are necessarily kind of illegal, you know, uh, crime elements, kidnapping, tranquilizer darts, though I'm really happy with how the tranquilizer dart scene kind of turned out. I was really glad uh, editing that together that we had enough kind of coverage to make it look convincing. I obviously would have enjoyed a chase afterwards. Here he is burying the gun, as I mentioned, with these flashback shots, and uh, that shot of the blood hitting the rocks, you know, which is a nice practical effect we were able to do. If you're going to have all these kind of wounds and things like that, you know, there it is, gory. People uh, cringed in the cinema a little bit for that. Um, but, you know, it's just such a quick moment that you're able to kind of sell it. And this ground was not wanting to be dug up at all, this side of the road ground that I had him digging. So we had to fade to black there. And, uh, the classic amount of time that, you know, you sort of jump forward in films, I feel, is three months. And every time I see it's three months later, it's really, you know, those 90 days that's easy to sort of, uh, you know, put them in a new place. And here they are, literally in a new place, their apartment. And one of my, um, favorite outfits that Dallas got to wear on this day, he basically blends into the sofa, which is a lot of fun. And he's on the phone with, um, Perpetua, there she is, she's sitting at Lake Chinindera, and, uh... There he is, blending in with the sofa. They're actually both using the exact same phone in this scene, which was my phone at the time, one of those little flip phones, the silver ones. And, um, yeah, he's now thinking of proposing. So he's reached a point, three months on, where they've had this traumatic experience that's obviously brought them closer together. And though they've been dating for a while before that, now things have improved to the point where he thinks he's going to propose and, um, you know, be with Perpetua, but, uh, be with, um, Sorry, Celeste, but uh, basically at this time what he's not aware of is the cycle is about to repeat And uh, the final shot of this film is that we're going to see Gwen at the front door And uh, he knocks down the ring beside the sofa there and brings up this box Which was the box you saw at the beginning of the film when her feet um, are shown from under the bed In a quick Tarantino moment Uh, Of course he loves shots of feet But um, this shot here of uh, the box... He's never seen it before, and it's almost hiding in plain sight, which is a real tunnel vision man thing. And then there's a series of photos of uh, notes and uh, rings and mementos. In a way, uh, by killing Gordon, as you saw in the flashbacks, she shot him, he's dead, she's gotten away with murder. And uh, a bunch of people after the fact told me that they thought she was going to murder Rob, and they got the sense that she was this uh, woman that you know, got together with men, and then they died, and she got away with it, and this was a repeated pattern, here's the final shot now, of, uh, Gwen at the door, and her smiling, and she doesn't have to introduce herself, she's, uh, for the audience to think about, and, uh, pretty much it means that Celeste is now testing Rob, that he's reached a point where he's going to propose, uh, unbeknownst to her, but, um, you know, that's the film, and, uh, now, whether or not he gets tested and fails or not is is a, a sequel, I suppose, that's never going to happen. I always had an idea for the title of the sequel of um, The Last Resort to Resorting to Violence. I just really liked the way that sort of sounded, but uh, is she going to kill Rob, you know, was one of the big questions I had. Um, people asked me after the fact, and I never thought she seemed that malicious, but um, there must have been more in the performance that uh, came across. Well, I hope you've enjoyed these insights. Uh, I'm sure I could talk for a lot longer about it, but I've tried to uh, keep the rambling to a minimum. I guess my point is is that Rodriguez um, says it best when he says, you know, if you want to make a film, you have to put together the a list of all the things you have, the assets you have. If you have a car, if you have a shed, if you have access to nunchucks, you know, these are all things you can write down that, um, you know, you can incorporate into your film. And... I tried to overstretch here more than I more than I probably should have and that's my retrospect. Uh, pretty much I shouldn't have included a cage um, you know that I had to then build. Uh, there was a lot of guns and knives and blood and death and elements in this film that um, you know pushed it probably beyond where I was up to and had I shot maybe a straight drama or a comedy or something uh, a bit more straightforward, I suppose like imagine. Kevin Smith's Clerks or something, you know, where it's more talky and that kind of thing, that um, maybe I would have hit the mark a bit better. But um, as it stands, I'm I'm content with this whole experience of The Last Resort and uh, the the fact that it all got made. I couldn't be more thankful to all the people who helped out. And, um, you know, basically, my idea was a few years ago to put it on Facebook, on uh, YouTube, rather. And so you know, you can sort of watch and share the film there and uh, just make it freely available because it was such an interesting experience for me, uh, such an interesting kind of learning curve. And, uh, you know, the team that helped me make it, uh, Phil Hignett doing the editing, Josh Burse, director of photography, uh, my producers, Peter Daly and co. And, like, the, um, the actors were all fantastic on this film. It was so great uh, in terms of of them taking a chance with me as much as I was taking a chance with them. And uh, I'm really glad this whole experience happened. You know, it it sort of proved a point to me and um, showed me that that this is something I could do. Um, Whether or not I do it again and again, um, I'm not sure it will ever happen again. We'll we'll take it, you know, one day at a time. But uh, if I write something that um, I feel I really want to make and uh, really speaks to me, then uh, I think you'll see me back writing and directing. Um, I'm sure the lessons of this film will make me make a better film next time. And uh, I really appreciate everyone who's had a a listen to this audio commentary. Obviously, um, this is as part of Podme If You Can, the podcast I've been doing for five or six years now with uh, Lloyd Hughes. And uh, we would both probably like to thank you for our 200 episodes, you know, all the uh, feedback and everything over the, um, the years. And I suppose uh, I'll leave you by saying uh, there'll be more Podme if you can uh, next week. Uh, with episode 201, there's an interview with Virginia, who was in this film, uh, coming up. So uh, keep an eye out for that. And as well, uh, there's Facebook pages for both The Last Resort as well as pod me if you can, so you can be in touch with us there and uh, let us know uh, your thoughts, I suppose, or if there are any unanswered questions about the last resort. Thanks for listening.